All right, everybody. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, writer, journalist, podcaster, actor, dancer, model. Uh, I own uh, Halliburton, you know, the company, and ExxonMobil. There's a lot of people that don't know about me. Uh, check my stuff out, my writing at jessesingle.substack.com. Check out my podcast I co-host with Blocked and Reported, with Blocked and Reported, <laughs> called Blocked and Reported. I need caffeine blockedandreported.org. I don't remember my co-host name. If it pops back into my head, I'll um, give her a shout out. We just recorded a good episode today that um, you will have access to Monday or earlier if you join our uh, premium subscription thing. Um, today, I'm mostly just going to take your questions. I want to give a little spiel about an article in Style for Time as I find the right tab. I'll get to you shortly, Ben. Others, feel free to jump in the queue because I don't have that much to say. So, I'm, uh, there's always like a push-pull, and I'm always torn on this. There is no subject in progressive spaces that comes up more frequently, um, with the possible exception of Donald Trump, than like gender stuff and, and the transgender uh, issue. And sometimes I feel like I talk about it or write about it too much, but it is just like constantly popping up. So indulge me. I just want to explain one thing that had been rattling around in my head a lot, and it got charred loose by an article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago called Bette Midler and Macy Gray Upset Trans Activists Advocates. Here's why. Um, you know, they both said controversial stuff lately. You can look it up. Uh, here's my basic argument. Um, there's the particular understanding of sex and gender uh, that is sort of normative in progressive spaces right now basically says that we all have a thing called a gender identity. And if our gender identity clashes with our, what used to be called biological sex, you're not really supposed to use that term anymore, but whatever, the gender identity always wins out. So that's what's meant by trans women are women. If someone identifies as a woman, they are a woman. If they identify as a man, they're a man. If they identify as non-binary, they're non-binary. And it's pretty important to this belief uh, system and this belief system is not like trans rights. People often like conflate the two. This is a particular understanding of trans rights. Um, but it's important to this belief system that there not really be exceptions or that we don't talk about times when biological sex might trump someone's subjective sense of themselves. And the problem has been for a while now that in progressive spaces, people just sort of repeat trans women are women, trans women are tra women, trans women are women, and it becomes not like, you know, a nice, we should treat people the way they want to be treated, which I think is true in most cases, but like a true sort of thought terminating cliche. And my experience has been that if you raise any questions in these communities about any of this, you might have people back channeling you saying they have the same questions or expressing disagreement with the orthodoxy. But usually what happens is people say, well, trans women are women. So what's the issue? There's no issue here. Um, I encountered this in a listserv I was on like two or three years ago where the sports thing came up and like a, a female journalist in her 20s said, well, you know, they're going to play on the women's team because they're women. There's no there's no issue here. And the problem is this idea – and maybe I'll write about this because this idea has been so successful at um, becoming the way to talk about these issues in progressive institutions, whether within newsrooms <clears throat> or I'm sure like – we were talking about Netflix yesterday. I'm guessing in the Slack at Netflix, this is the only view that is expressed uh, that doesn't bring the hammer down on you. Um, it's been extremely successful in in progressive institutions, Democratic Party, ACLU. There's no polling anywhere that suggests most people are yet on board with this version of it, that, that that's all there is to it. Someone is who they say there are. There can be no exceptions. Polling out of the UK shows that when you actually explain to people the um, the full version of this, which is that you know someone who says they're a woman but hasn't physically transitioned at all at all, should they be given access to changing rooms, blah blah blah, whatever you, the person you're listening to this, think of of the right answer to that, the fact is most British voters disagree. And similarly, let me pull up this stat. Someone posted it to our subreddit. Um, Pew regularly ask people whether oh man i wish yeah here we go 
more Americans believe gender is determined by sex assigned at birth in 2022 than in 2017. So uh, Pew asked this question a lot. And in September 2017, 54% of people said uh, gender is determined by sex assigned at birth. That had climbed up six points to 60% in May of 2022. So as this um, rights battle gets more and more salient, and as there's more articles written about it and TV segments produced about it, the view that some trans activists, not all by any sense, by any in any sense, um, I'm having a lot of trouble talking today. Which is, it's bad to have trouble talking when you're trying to express like fairly nuanced, complicated views. But the view that uh, organizations like the ACLU and the Democratic Party want to be um, the hegemonic view is getting less popular, not more popular. They're not. This message is not working on people so far. Other other messages, like trans people should be able to use the bathroom they want, are working fine. And in general, people express warmth and compassion to trans people. There's just a hiccup in getting them to adopt this particular understanding of the relationship between gender identity and gender and biological sex. Back to the Washington Post article. One thing you'll notice is that in progressive spaces, there's endless talk of TERFs trans-exclusionary radical feminists. These are radical feminists who don't think trans women are women. It's also it is sort of deployed as a slur, like like to criticize anyone with questions about this stuff. I've been called a turf when I had not previously ever been called a radical feminist by anyone. Katie Herzog, that's her name, that's my co-host. She's made the same point. She's like, I didn't know I was a radical feminist. Um, <clears throat> basically, you see, turfs get entirely disproportionate coverage relative to their numbers or to their influence. Radical feminists do not have much influence in society. If you'd asked any progressive five years ago, do radical feminists have a lot of influence in society, they would have told you no. But increasingly, you're seeing what is basically a conspiracy theory in which TERFs are this cabal of evil, short-haired lesbian professors who are influencing public opinion on this. And and the, the implicit suggestion at least appears to be if it weren't for TERFs, people would have the right views on trans issues. And this is like this is a conspiracy theory because it just it skips that whole step of actually convincing people that this view is the right view in the first place. And the fact is, most people have not yet been convinced of this. Um, they could eventually be convinced of this. It could be ten years from now. I'll look back on my my understanding of this stuff that that self ID might not be the start and the end of the conversation and be ashamed. This happens. Like views evolve. They don't always evolve or change, but sometimes they do. But the fact is you don't need to talk about TERFs to explain why Macy Gray or um, Bette Midler expressed contrary views on this. They expressed contrary views on this because they represent the majority opinion that gender identity maybe shouldn't trump all in every situation. And it's interesting that people talk so much about TERFs because it it – like it allows you if you're an activist who wants or a writer or a journalist because a lot of journalists just act like activists on the subject frankly if you want it to be the case that the world thinks about this the way you think about it you're sort of abdicating your own responsibility to convince it by saying well people would believe this but all those turfs in their lesbian witch cabal are convincing people to hold the wrong views but that's a pretty bizarre thing to think because there's never been polling suggesting public opinion was on your side. It literally – like um, let's say I, I pick an even less popular belief. Most people don't believe that Bigfoot is the president. I don't need any – to appeal to any conspiracy or point to any group of people convincing Big, Bigfoot isn't the president – because it's never been the case that people believe that. Similarly, it's never been the case that a majority of people or a big majority of people believe in this particular understanding of gender identity. They might over time, they might come to be convinced of that, but they haven't. But you're sort of taking a shortcut by blaming this on TERFs. It, it doesn't make sense. And the fact is TERFs have no power. They have no societal power. You're talking about a small group of like British lesbian sociologists or philosophers who write books that frankly no one reads. So... I just think this is a broader symptom of people who spend – God knows I'm not in a position to judge people who spend time online. When I do spend time online, I promise you my, my Twitter feed is not just liberals or just conservatives or just leftists. I do see a wide variety of views. I think there's people who are so tightly enmeshed or ensconced in their epistemic bubble 
and have so convinced themselves that anyone who disagrees with them is irredeemable that they genuinely think that this is a really popular view. Someone, someone, um, mentioned the old line of like everyone I know voted for McGovern. I, I think there's a, that's like sort of what's going on here. Everyone I know isn't a turf, but if, if being a turf means believing there are some times when gender identity shouldn't trump biological sex, almost everyone's a turf. Like I promise you. So you can't really point to turfs as the uh, causal mechanism for people not believing what you believe. Well, I've talked too much, and I, I think I should write this out. I think it could be an interesting essay, uh, potentially. I mean, people will get mad at me, but whatever. Ben, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Uh, thanks for taking my sure. call. I, yeah, this sounds interesting. Definitely write it up. Um, and I guess my question is kind of peripherally related. Um, I was having a conversation last night with a friend, and um, – we didn't talk about this topic, but we may as well have. We were talking about a little bit about race and, and um, I guess, uh, what would you like wealth, um, things like that. But yeah. the conversation kept going back to like, and this is from my friend's side, the conversation from him kept going back to like this kind of idea that like ultimately we're just two white guys. Like, you know, we're, it's not really our place to talk about this. Like, and, you know, you know, I know what you mean by what you're saying, but like someone might misunderstand something that you're saying or, you know, I'm trying to think of specifics, but it's just like, to me, my least controversial opinions seem to be like the most controversial nowadays. It just feels like there's some degree of like topsy-turviness to all of this. And, and I guess I just, I'm finding it hard to, to talk to people, even people that I know really well about just like fairly straightforward things. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable with this friend who's a very close friend. I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about how like boys and girls might have different interests in general. That would just be like unthinkable. Yeah. That there's person. a stigma so, against that in progressive spaces, even though yes. I think a lot of people think that's the case. Exactly. And probably even like my friend does. It's just that I think, I see people getting kind of captured by this. Uh, the way I think about it is kind of like a, a cult of self-righteousness yeah. that seems to be existing on the left and on the right. Just people who think that. The and like in, in, of, in curiosity too, I would say. Yeah. Like, like a lack, a of, lack curiosity. of curiosity. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like this feeling of, of like, I'm, I'm a good person and, and I believe that the world is made up of good people and of bad people. And that's, kind of the basis for a lot of this sort of self-righteous cultiness. And I just, I guess my, my question is just how, how do you get through to people who have this mindset, especially people that you care about? Like, I don't want to lose my friends to this ideology. And it seems like it's just kind of happening. And, and yeah. um, what do you, how do you cross that gap? I think generally like, in much the same way I wouldn't get in a fight with an evangelical Christian, there's some people where their speech is so loaded with like catchphrases and, and thought-terminating cliches that I just sort of – I'll decide. Like I'm not going to engage with this person about politics. You can mm -hmm. – um, luckily, that hasn't been an issue in my real life that much because I've said this before. I just have like very normy, mostly offline liberal friends. But uh, I, don't, I don't really know the answer – for like maintaining relationship for someone who's getting radicalized like that. I think, I think it helps. I often go back to the police abolition thing because that's such a, it's very hard to argue against the claim that this issue that a lot of white liberals and leftists take to be like a pretty important uh, precept of social justice and, and, and fixing the police is quite unpopular among the group that's supposedly most affected. Again, at the level of averages, race is stupid, other caveats. So I, I would just ask someone like, look, at the very least, you should admit that you're, you hold this opinion because um, you want to help this group. This group disagrees with you. And, and you should wonder if there might be other issues where the groups you're speaking for or for the benefit of disagree with you. And mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't mean you're wrong and they're right, but, but what, what do you make of that? And because I think there's a lot of issues like that and there's a lot of misrepresentation of what basically non-white people believe because it's 
fucking beyond stupid to carve up Americans into white versus non-white people. We're yeah. More complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's actually a really good example of, of a pretty cut and dry, you know, case where if you actually want to have that conversation and the polling is there, it's pretty clear what the community wants and how, how that differs from what activists want. Yeah. Um, yeah, right, I'll, you, I'll, I'll, of course. Thanks, Ben. Good luck. Talk to your friends. Andrew, thank what you. is up? Hey, Jesse. Um, hey. So uh, I just uh, heard what you said there at the start. And um, actually, it, it made me think of something that I've been sort of ruminating on for a little bit. So um, with, with when you said, like, specifically when someone will say, well, trans women or women, what's the problem? I've noticed, um, and this is on the left and the right, uh where there is a tendency, well, actually, you know, to be to be completely fair, this is less on the right than it is on the left, um, where people will pretend they can't even understand why someone would feel such a way. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, like, like to me, a very basic test of competency is if I ask this person, you know, what their thoughts are, what would they tell me, even if you disagree with what their motivations are? Or what it is that they want? Can you reliably reproduce the opinion of, of of your opposition. That's a very important skill to cultivate. And if people lack it, you shouldn't generally listen to them. Yeah. And I just, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, cause I, I went more the hard science route. Like when you were in, you know, school, wasn't that kind of, uh, was that, was that de-emphasized as a basic means of, of, of judging whether or not you have any expertise in a, in a domain or an area? I had a again a pretty like normie education, so no, I thought. I mean, I was a philosophy major in high school, uh, college, and then I went to public policy grad school. And at all those levels, I, I think we were inculcated with a level of of nuance and being able to understand opposing arguments. I mean, like in in grad school, my classmates were going to go work on the hill or work for NGOs. the The idea that they wouldn't want to be able to accurately anticipate and respond to counter arguments would be insane. Like the school wouldn't be doing its job in training them. So I've, I've noticed like a really big deficit in this regard where there's just people, including like pretty well-known intellectuals, at least how they comport themselves on Twitter. It's not just that they're a little bad at this. They're completely incapable of accurately expressing the views of people they disagree with. And and you're right, it's really important, but luckily it's like a pretty big and useful warning sign that if they if you can't even understand the person you disagree with argument and can't accurately capture it, you're you're sort of worthless as a thinker. I mean, maybe that's too harsh, but it's like what what are you for? What is the point of anything you say? Uh, no, I mean, I, I completely and, and I'm curious um, what you think. Like, how how would you enforce that? Because it used to be in in the past that you would you'd have that enforced by your peer groups. Where now you're sort of celebrated for, you know, a misrepresentation. Yeah, uh, right. But if if someone could brand you in a way that stuck it and says like, "Hey, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about," and here's you know here's here's some citations to go along with that. Um, I, I I just wish that we had some kind of you know centralized shame system. <laughs> Yeah, but there's you know we're well we're well past the point at least in online communication of like in most settings of neutral third party arbiters and especially on Twitter you will never win. I've 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 screwed up repeatedly on this this idea that you could actually like talk people into being earnest or or good faith or charitable it'll just never win because the people who win Twitter win because precisely because they lack those qualities. Right, it's because it's an attention grabbing game and not a not a be not I was correct. When we looked at the source game, yeah. Look, uh, I, I oh sorry, God. Oh sorry. After you. Oh, um, I, I was actually going to ask you. This is my my next question here because uh, I, I figure you you uh, need some help killing time. These calls sometimes. Uh, I I know you're a self hating Twitter user, so can I just ask you like what virtue or like ideal version of yourself do you feel like you are denigrating? when you go on Twitter? Because I, I sometimes think of what I just like about myself if I post a comment or say like, you know, call into a call-in show. Um, and I'm curious as to what yours are. Uh, yeah, I just think it makes me less charitable. It, it makes me more aware of and attendant to 
the worst faith critics of stuff I believe in. Like, there's a, I just, there's a lot of shit talking there I shouldn't know about because it's not good for me to know about. There's a lot of dumb opinions I shouldn't know about. I will get in squabbles with people who don't, like, I'm not trying to be a dick, but they often don't seem to do anything but tweet. Whereas yeah. I, I can at least point to, like, stuff where I've laid out my thoughts more fully. So I just think it makes me a worse and angrier and less happy person. I, I think it probably also makes me, unfortunately, at this point, a fairly significant amount of money just because, like, with a click, I can send stuff out to 130,000 people. So I obviously have a tortured relationship with it. Mostly I wish I could just stay off it. Well, thank you for, for that. I, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, and then I had one other uh, just sort of fun thought I had earlier. Um, so I know your catchphrase is it's complicated. And I, I think this may be a stumper, but it's not a, I promise it's not a gotcha. Can you name any um, anything in the public sphere or public policy which seems simple to you? I, I mean, I came up like the gay marriage thing was pretty radicalizing. I, I just I thought that that was pretty simple because okay. all the arguments against gay marriage struck me as like real stretches, especially if we're going to have separation of church and state. So that, I think there's yeah, some that are fairly simple. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Patty, what is up? Hi, Jesse, and hi, everyone. Um, I guess, you know, the, the only thing I can say about Twitter is that uh, it's absolutely a machine to ensure that our nuance, our curiosity, <laughs> are treated for, for sanctimony and certainty, yeah. and it is absolutely to the denigration of all of us. But um, I want to also thank the previous uh, callers for bringing up uh, the need for that and uh, and how that is really getting lost, especially in the gender debates. I should maybe put my cards on the table a little bit, although partly I would want to put my cards on the table and then nuke the uh, um, recording of this later <laughs> on, <laughs> because I am one of these folks who is in a very precarious pro- professional situation. I teach at the university level. Uh, I do not have tenure. I'm in a non-tenurable position because I followed my spouse, my ex-spouse now, uh, to this place, and I'm now in my late 50s. And as someone in my late 50s, my chances of restarting, uh, certainly in an academic job, are, are nil. Retooling might be possible, but um, but it would be hard. Uh, even though I know I've got all kinds of skills, I've, I've managed not to let the university grind down my self-esteem on that level. But nonetheless, I am, you know, worried about my professional, um, you know, livelihood uh, if I'm caught out. And, and here's the kicker. I teach in women's gender and sexuality studies, so I cannot avoid these topics. Trained as a historian, originally German history. And what I've noticed is in the last couple of years is that uh, getting called a transphobe has become really easy. Um, and, you know, I think I was out there before most of the country was in terms of, you know, straight, heterosexual, you know, gender not really gender conforming-ish, but I, I'm not visibly non-conforming. My personality is certainly not conforming. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, we hear about Jazz Jennings, and I, you know, brought this up with my students, showed a little clip of the Barbara Walters interview with her. And, uh, and for a long time, I was just like, yeah, this is the kind, and that word kind, right, we'll probably come back to that, uh, humane and decent thing to do for young people. And then I started seeing how, you know, more and more kids were being swept up in this uh, and also how the uh, ideology around it was being radicalized. And I'm now at a point where I just wonder how on earth can we have these conversations? And I am somebody who I think, you know, historically has been very good in the classroom about leading nuanced discussions, about trying hard not to, you know, impose any kind of orthodoxy. Uh, It's one of the things in this field that I ended up teaching in where, you know, there is a tendency to to get, you know, sort of hyper-politically correct, as we used to call it, or now hyper-woke. And I think it's not been beneficial in a scholarly way. But in the classroom, there certainly has been the opportunity to have pretty open-ended discussions, and students have appreciated that, um, including some, you know, conservative students, where I've really appreciated them uh, in turn as well. And so uh, it's it's a... We're at a point where we're exactly the institutions and those of us in those institutions who ought to be leading a more nuanced discussion feel paralyzed. And what I find instead is, you know, I've, I have a colleague who's in a totally different area of the university who has a gender nonconforming daughter. And she asked me, you know, sort of in whispers, what can be done? You know, she doesn't think her daughter is a trans guy, but, you know, where does she turn? 
the fact that, that she's wondering is not the problem. The fact that it's whispered is, of course, absolutely the problem. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's that was really a long windup. But I, I do want to just speculate a little bit on this figure of the turf and why uh, the turf keeps being seen as the absolute buoy person, buoy woman, buoy frau, whatever we want to call her. Uh, not not all are lesbians by any stretch, and certainly many are not uh, college professors. I see, you know, people ranging from folks who I really would say are have have some real animus or disgust toward trans people. But there are tons of of uh, people, largely women. Of course, you don't really get called a turf very easily unless you're a guy or unless you're Jesse single. That works too, I guess. It helps. It helps absolutely. It gets you in that special club. So, uh, you know, I think part of it is really this idea that women have a particular moral obligation, something that philosopher Kate Mann has written about. I know that not everybody here is a a big fan of hers, but I really think she's onto something with this idea that that women are seen as morally obligated to be givers and to be supporters. And we can, you know, trace that historically. There are a lot of different ways to come at that that insight. It's it's funny to imagine you presenting her with this particular example because I can imagine her not uh, right. not endorsing people, it, at least not on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The turban on Twitter have tried and gotten blocked. Um, and I am not, you know, so open on Twitter. And I'm also, you know, I, I consider myself trans inclusionary, insofar as I do think that feminism needs to, you know, speak toward the the issues of trans women and trans men. Yeah. My problem is I don't want to lose this sex-based analysis. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then I think the other thing is is that because it's a relatively small group of people, although every day more of us, it appears now with Bette Midler, et cetera, um, who get you know tarred with this brush, and, and it, it's a way of sort of externalizing this onto a very small group of people instead of acknowledging what you said at the outset, Jesse, which is that there is this absolutely broad-based support for trans rights in terms of housing and non-discrimination and employment, uh, but that people do also see these you know, relatively limited areas where there are rights conflicts between the rights of, of uh, natal women. I've sort of backed away from cis women, if I can avoid it, because there, there is this you know, implication that you are uh, happy to embrace your gender identity as a woman, and you know, yeah. any, any feminist worth her salt has some issues with that, right? Uh, going back at least to Simone de Beauvoir. But, um, yeah, so this idea that, that somehow uh, this small cabal is responsible for what is actually the majority opinion, and at the same time, then when we do talk about these relatively limited areas where there are rights conflicts, it is painted as that Washington Post article you cited did, as being you know anti-trans feminists, as opposed to, say, pro-women uh, feminists, which is something that I think the the, the best of the so-called turban uh, have done quite, you know, successfully in sort of saying here, we have women in, in prisons, and they are being, you know, raped and impregnated. And some of them, you know, impregnated through consensual sex. But we can't talk about this, because, you know, as long as trans women are women is this mantra, we can't actually have a, an open and decent and mutually respectful dialogue about how we might protect everybody's rights, maybe involving some compromises. But, you know, how do we go about doing that when we can't even talk about it? So anyway, I could go on all afternoon. I'll, I'll uh, stop for now. But, um, yeah, so, Jesse, I just I wanted to sort of throw that into the turf debate. And uh, and thank you also for, you know, even though I, I think that, you know, the article is maybe a little less conspiratorial than your tweets came out to, to make it to be. Um, I think that the overall issue is there that, you know, this small, relatively small group of women is being blamed. And every time, you know, you say, well, that's not what TERFs are actually claiming or, or feminists are, are claiming. They're claiming that there's a rights conflict here, not that we want to exterminate trans people. Then the response is, well, you, you actually do want to exterminate them, but, you know, that everything else is just a dog whistle. And, I've, yeah. you know, I've seen dog whistles. I remember Nixon's presidency. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Those were right? dog whistles. Those were dog whistles. Um, but the, you know, by and large, I think that radical feminists, materialist feminists, gender critical feminists are all being pretty straightforward about their opinions. I don't think that they've got a lot of different cards. But anyway, thanks for bringing uh, light. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Um, yeah, I'll get to you, Alex, in a minute. I mean, the one thing that, that that conversation made me think about is I think there's been like a little bit of a mixed, uh, missed opportunity in academia. Um, uh, so I'm just going to mute you until I'm done blabbing. Um, I think I've talked about this in the context of philosophy, but... <clears throat> This new understanding of gender, like, it brings a lot of genuinely interesting uh, debates, basically. So, like, 
what if you see yourself differently from how I see you, what are the limits of my obligation to see you the way you see yourself? That's an actually tricky, interesting question. It hasn't been treated that way by most of academia and or the corners of academia that cover this subject, especially philosophy. Instead, the way it's been treated is the person seeing you has an obligation to see you the way you want to be seated. And it's pretty ironclad. And if they don't accept that responsibility, they may be responsible for you dying or killing yourself or something. It's often not like – it's pretty half-baked, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of interesting thinkers who could step up and like try to actually sort out – what Patty was talking about with rights compromises, because there's obviously some of that going on in some cases. I don't think anyone denies that. Or, sorry, people do deny that, but it's ridiculous. Anyway, Alex, what is up? I think with, um, like, testosterone, there's some potential for long-term risks of things of, like, I think certain cancers. Yeah, Basically, I think there's, like, some moderate potential long-term risks, but we don't have a lot of good data from people who have been on hormones for, like, decades, which is, you know, what the goal is. If you start hormones is probably you're, you're hoping to stay on them because you want those effects and you need to keep taking them. So um, we don't have great data. We have some data of some potential health risks. I mean, people can just look up, like uh, – testosterone effects, estrogen effects, you'll find some data. And then puberty blockers, not great data, not great data for the use case of blockers followed by cross-sex hormones. Um, the main problem is we just don't have a, like, a good, that many cohorts of people who really started these treatments at a young age and stayed on them for decades. So no, not good data. We have some sense, again, of the long-term effects of these uh, hormones, but not not very good data, I don't think. Oh, okay, because yeah, I was just also... I guess another thing, not really a wrench in the trans um, gender sports debate, but I was just wondering, like, um, I remember some time ago people were wondering, like, if a woman could ever join in the base, join in, like, Major League Baseball. Have they had discussions about that, about, like, trans men joining the sport? I kind of entertained the thought myself, but I thought it was very implausible after I got some information that maybe we underestimate the athleticism needed to be in MLB baseball. Yeah, I just, I don't think, this has come up, once in a while, one time it came up um, in Texas because they refused to let a trans boy wrestle boys, which is what he wanted to do. He had to wrestle girls, and I think in part because he was on T, he was like wrecking them, if memory serves. People can look this up. I could be butchering it. But uh, I don't think – I think there's maybe one trans boy swimmer in the NCAAs. Um, this came up in the Leah Thomas debate. Basically, at the pro level, this will not be an issue because you can't overcome the sex gap just from going on T. Uh, in much the same way, I, I think in a lot of sports, I think trans women retain their advantages. That's what some of the emerging science is saying. Uh, no trans man is going to be able to switch from being fully biologically female to like anywhere near where the level you need to compete at any pro sport, even baseball, which I think is, they're still elite pro athletes. I, I, I do think it requires less athleticism than hockey, basketball, or football, but I just don't think it's going to be an issue. I think they would be allowed to compete and no one would be against it, to be honest, but I, I don't think it's going to come up. Yeah, I don't really see like any advantage, especially with um, the past scandals that baseball had. PEDs. Not steroids. Yeah. Uh, I think people would see this differently, like from a moral and fairness perspective, but um, I don't I don't see it coming up. But um, it's a good question. And thank you for the call, Alex. Sarah, what is up? Hi. Sorry about that. Of course. Um, first, I wanted to say that Patty should start a podcast of her own. It was super interesting to listen to her. I'm sure she <laughs> had some cool experiences. Um I was going to pivot the conversation a little bit away from yeah. gender, uh, just because of something that I've seen online lately is it looks like progressives are trying to relabel pro-life to forced birth, which I found really interesting. Um, like on the one hand, I think it's a really powerful image that, you know, it's it kind of like is clearly the, uh, the end point of banning abortion. Um, but on the other hand, as somebody who is also sympathetic to pro-life people, you know, I think they have sincere beliefs. I, I wonder if it's going to just like fuel the fire more in this argument. I'm curious if you had any thoughts about that. I don't only because I'm not sure. Like if I had to suspect, um, you know, some of the slightly more radical activists will embrace it. I don't see like NARAL pro-choice America embracing it. Although what do I know? 
and then it'll be controversial. The the pro life or anti abortion folks will get mad at it. There'll be online fights, but at the end of the day, it's just different labels for the same groups of like political adversaries. And I think, you know, the five hundredth time you hear it, it would lose its um, power to shock anyway. I wouldn't if I were. God forbid they would ever put me in this situation. But if I were like advising uh, abortion rights group, I I don't think I would say they should use this language because I think part of the problem is there's been like maybe because um, Roe provided such a protective shield, there's been a little bit of a failure to develop arguments that like appeal to the average person who has pretty moderate views on this. So I I wouldn't say injecting forced birth uh, would be a good idea. It's sort of the equivalent of partial birth abortions, which like the way conservatives this. The, the the image they conjure is something that happens like very rarely, but it's just, you know, partial birth abortion sounds so bad that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of propaganda here, obviously. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, like the terms pro-choice and pro-life have been stable for a long time. So yeah. it seems like it would be hard to change, but perhaps I'm just too online, but I'm seeing it so much lately. Uh, and, and I'm like, okay, is this, you know, what people are going to start demanding that we shift to? Yeah, I'm going to keep an eye out for that now. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Neil, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Um, so you mentioned gay marriage earlier, and of course I support it being legal, but then I was wondering, are you as extreme as I am? Do you support the legalization of polygamy where people should be able Because I, I think it's unfair that the government doesn't recognize that. I don't, but I don't have any good argument for why I don't. I, don't, I, I genuinely haven't thought it through. Um, yeah, it's just complete moral intuition on my part that three people shouldn't be able to get married, but I bet if I sat down and like worked out why that's the case, I wouldn't be able to come up with a good moral argument. Obviously from a libertarian perspective, it's like if people want to enter into this contractual obligation, uh, they should be able to. And, you know, I would imagine from a libertarian perspective, it's like the tax breaks you get if you're married are just a blow for fairness anyway, because taxation in general is not a good thing. So, no, it's funny because conservatives were using the slippery slope arguments at the, t- at the time. They're like, oh, what if four people want to get married? Or what if you want to marry a dog? Uh, I'm obviously against <laughs> dog marriage. But uh, no, it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't even know what the argument would be, but I'll, I'll think about that a little bit. Cool. cool. Thank, thank you, Neil. Uh, Pope, His Holiness, gracing us with his presence yet again. What is up? Hey, Jesse. Are you Good, keeping- how are you? Not too bad at all. Not too bad. Uh, I just want to ask you a little bit about something I think you were saying earlier about, um, you know, uh, a common kind of progressive belief now that um, trans women are women and uh, like that that can't really be questioned or that that it shouldn't be questioned. And uh, I'm wondering if you like, have, have, is there any debate amongst progressive circles um, about how some of like these identities can sometimes be in conflict with each other? Like, uh, for instance, recently, I've seen a number of people, which I hadn't really noticed before, identifying as both like a trans man, let's say, or a trans woman and non-binary. And it seems like that holding those two identities together would kind of go against that progressive dogma that like... You're thinking about it too much. You're not supposed to think about it. But does that... I know you're not really supposed to think about it, but do they never talk about it or is it never really debated, you think, in these sorts of things? Yeah, I think... people like me will talk about it or like, you know, it's not as though the liberal ecosystem is devoid of anyone talking about this. And I think the conversations opened up a little bit, but uh, for the most part, no, you're just supposed to celebrate people's identities, which is, I don't know. There's like a lot of weird stuff going on here between like, I, I celebrate the fact that in America, Muslims can start mosques and can worship uh, without folks legally molesting them. I think that's why we're one of the best countries in the world, that they have that right. Do I celebrate individual Muslims' own beliefs about a wingsteed or Muhammad? No, that would be a weird thing to ask of me. So I think there's like a little bit of conflation here between um, being asked to let people do what they want and live in freedom with dignity versus being asked to endorse their particular belief about themselves. Cause I'm with you. I am that annoying kind of person who'd be like, well, based on like everything I've been told about what it means to be binary trans or non-binary, I don't see how you could be both. I wouldn't start haranguing someone on Twitter about this, but when 
I think it's just like the earnestness and piousness that gets to me. The idea that I'm like harming someone unless I agree that someone is exactly what they say they are. I don't think that's a really sustainable um, message if you're trying to build support for a rights movement. Yeah, no, like I totally agree. Like I wouldn't be debating with the person like if that's like like another like kind of axioms in the movement is like um, – like, you know, like believe a person when they say what, they, when they tell you what they are, like, you know, and only an individual, it's a subjective thing. Only an individual can decide what gender they are, what identity they are. And like, like it's no odds to like me or whatever, whatever anyone wants to identify, whether they want to identify as trans and non-binary. But yeah. I just mean in terms of like when it's actually like at, at like a very strongly held dogmatic position, like amongst a lot of people that you would be criticized for ever even challenging, like in terms of the, the position being like that trans women are women, like in an almost biological sense. Um, but if that's, if that's like a very strongly held position, it's just a surprise to me that like, it's never debated amongst these people how that can be the case. But then there are also people who identify as that, as, as trans, but non-binary as well. And just how there seems to be like some sort of tension sometimes between some of the identities, but it just never seems to be in any way uh, discussed. And it, it, it just never, I suppose, yeah, uh, like it seems to um, come up. Yeah, you know, no, I mean, I do think it's discussed. It's just not discussed in like so-called respectable progressive spaces. But I do think that's changing. I mean, New York Magazine just ran an article by this non-binary kid. I mean, kid, they're a very talented writer because they're writing it. I think they're a staffer at New York Magazine at 24, but they were like, they basically acknowledged that part of the reason they came out as non-binary was for sort of social and political reasons. So I think the conversation's opening up. I agree with you. It's silly to, to say that these identities are super important and we all have to learn about it, but no, you can't have any questions. So I'm, I'm with you on this stuff. Cheers. Good luck. Thank you. Lauren, what is up? Hi, Jesse. Hey. Hi. So a day or so ago, um, Ellen Elliot Page's name was trending on Twitter um, due to Ellen Page's name, um, I think, was circulating around, um, which is their dead name. And BuzzFeed ran and posted an article about it, um, you know, stating that their dead name was um, around for 45 minutes. And I guess... I am struggling to figure out why that was so egregious and I don't really understand the whole like concept of dead naming. Now I want to be respectful, um, you know, to, um, the conversation. So I was curious as to what your thoughts are and what your recommendations are when we're talking about or referencing people of influence or actors who have transitioned and might've had some kind of, um, place in our pop culture or society. Um, I'm thinking about like the Wachowski sisters who used to be brothers before De- Debbie Lovato, et cetera. Yeah. Um, like how do we talk about them respectfully um, in this current like climate? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it comes down to the difference between how you treat someone like interpersonally. I, I will call people what they want to be called by that same token. Elliot Page became famous called someone else and they made movies or were in movies under that name. And I don't think it's realistic to expect people to memory hold that. And uh, there was a controversy at the New York times where I think one of the fights between some workers and management had to do with like going back and changing the names of folks uh, who wrote under one byline and then switched. And I just sort of think that if you have a public profile under that name you know that that's that's like what it's going to be that doesn't mean people should call you that name now but like you can't really erase that to erase that would just introduce a lot of difficulties and i i'm not convinced it's worth the trade-off i also don't think it's good to spread the idea that trans people are like instantly driven to suicide if they hear their own name. I don't know where that comes from. I don't, I don't think that's representative. I think a lot of trans people have a much more nuanced understanding of that than we're led to believe in much the same way. A lot of trans people have a more nuanced understanding of gender than what we're led to believe. So I just don't think that's like a good or responsible meme to spread that, that it automatically leads to that. But obviously if you harass someone and you repeatedly refer to them in a way they've asked not to be, referred to you're a jerk but um i guess i'm just with you that it's not realistic to pretend that someone didn't exist under their own name and there there are obvious like 
you know, we're talking trade-offs. If you if you want to talk about the Wachowskis being, you know, uh, it's like awkward to even talk about, but were they the first female directors to XYZ? I'm, I'm not sure that really survives feminist analysis because if you want to talk about the obstacles to female directors doing XYZ, that has to do partly with growing up female and then having a young early career as a female. So, yeah, I just think there's some trade-offs here. Great. Appreciate your um, opinions. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Chris. Chris is the co-host of Decoding the Gurus. You should check it out. What's up, my friend? Uh, morning, afternoon, or whatever it is for you, Jesse. Um, can you give me a cam using the AirPods? I can hear you. Yes, okay. I can. All right. That's good. Um, so I had a weird meta question, and this is something I heard like a week ago. Uh, it's, it's really... I'm just curious, um, and and then I wanted to ask you about the something about the University of um, Austin, but uh, I'll try to keep it short. The question is: This app, like Colin, I heard someone asking you how successful you think it's going to be, and it responds. But the app is really good, right? Like functionality-wise. And yeah. I was, I, I like actually created an account and was going to use it in the same way you are. And then I looked into the, the guy who's like kind of created the app, uh, who came across as like a very, at least from his online presence, like a Dave Rubin almost. And I kind of noticed that all of the shows that are kind of featured or popular, there's some exceptions, you know, there's Ben Burgess and there's you guys, but it's it's a pretty heavily weighted towards a kind of David, Dave Rubin, or at least like, you know, Matt Taibbi, Green uh, World kind of space. And I was just wondering, you mentioned, you know, like incentives to get uh, you or other people like on the platform. And I, I was curious, like, does any of that stuff ever bother you? You know, like if, if you are on the platform and like, would you consider going on locals, for example, or is it like a case by case basis? So uh, that's the matter. Just curious about like how you, uh, you know, weigh those kind of things. Someone in the chat, wait, when people, sorry, I'm breathing sound sucks. Can people hear my breathing? Because I, I was trying to mute myself when I wasn't talking. Just someone drop in chat what the breathing issue is. I am going to continue breathing. I apologize in advance. Um, I think it's case by case. In a situation like this, I didn't have any moral qualms signing on to an agreement uh, with them to produce podcasts. It was entirely no strings attached and they had no editorial control over it. If they'd asked for any editorial control or influence, I would have said no. So yeah, there's some platforms. I don't know enough about the locals. Um, There's probably some platforms where I'd feel some qualms about it. I just, it's like throughout my career. So I was at my first job was at the center for American progress. So I was literally Soros funded. I've written five or six articles for reason. So I was Coke funded. I just think at the end of the day, like writers and creator types generally, we tend historically to have taken money from patron types and in a case like this where there's just no expectation that they'll have any editorial control, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my answer to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfectly. And I'm, you know, I'm not demanding you disown the call on top. I'm just curious of like, uh, you know, how you weigh those kind of concerns. So that's, that's perfectly reasonable. And it, the University of Texas thing probably relates to Austin, that. right? Not Texas. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, in I Texas. Very but different, yeah. very different institutions. Um, so, yeah, the University of Austin, because Dawkins um, became, you know, a member of the board or advisory board or whatever the case, it, it kind of seemed to reignite people's memory about that institution. And it, it was also referenced in that recent um, resignation letter from the anthropologist, the tenured anthropologist, right? And I, I heard you and Katie discuss it, and I thought that you, you kind of got why it's 
like regardless of how you feel about you know academia this is not the solution and it's kind of silly to build like a philosophy department around like one or two philosophers who are primarily known for culture war stuff not not to say kit you know kit stockton i think is a bit different but like peter for example so but i was wondering uh to me it looks like when i culture war issues and like the university of austin or something comes up that it kind of seems that people can be really critical about the you know the woke or the the, the kind of progressive the problems of progressive culture extremely credulous when it comes to the kind of anti-woke solutions uh like like the university of austin and uh you can it's kind of interesting and and you and Katie like slightly unique in that space because it seems like you mean critical about like these kinds of things. So I'm wondering <laughs> what like how free you seems like that's the kind of thing University of Austin where you could be invited to be a part or, you know, be involved with and Chris, you cut, you cut, you, there's a slight connection issue. Are you saying Katie and I, we were critical of it or we were not critical of it? No, you were critical of it. Sorry. Um, but you're asking uh, how free we would feel given that it's like our milieu. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, the way that people respond to that so credulously, if that concerns you about an issue in the heterodox space, basically. Yeah, I guess, like, I don't see myself as in some, like, heterodox clubhouse. I, I'd like to think I'm more independent than that. And I also – people who get, like, really obsessed with the culture war stuff, um, James Lindsay types who think they're fighting some holy war creep me the hell out. And I think we need to put stuff in its proper context. I The University of Austin thing, I did think it was a little bit silly. I think it would be better to try to – address whatever issues you have within like pre-existing universities. I guess I just, I don't, I'm not sure I see it as a huge deal. I, I, I hope people aren't like applying to go there with think, not understanding that it's not accredited. It's just, it had more of like the whiff of a vanity project than a scam to me. Um, and I could be wrong about that. If they're like really separating people from their money and misrepresenting what they are, I'd, I'd be critical of them. And you know, Peter Bogosian, when I was at New York Magazine, he, he was involved in this IRB incident, and I wrote a piece about it, and I did the reporting, and it, it turned out that IRB laws being or rules being what they are, he was probably in the wrong, so I said so. So I, I try to be principled and consistent. I do think, as a general issue, we have more trouble criticizing our friends, and that probably leads us to not distributing you know, our criticism or our skepticism in exactly the proportions objectivity would demand although I, as i say that i don't even know what it would mean to take an objective approach to it because what would, you know what is objective yeah and i i don't think anybody is and uh i think you're right in terms of like the level of harm caused by it, it probably is more in the well not vanity project so yeah that i i just i find the the kind of discourse around the whole thing uh, kind of more interesting because it seems like there are people who regard it as, you know, that this is a potential future solution, including people who seem like they should know better, like, you know, Jonathan Haidt and whatnot. So, but in any case, that's all you answered. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing I'd say is like part, you also got to, I mean, you know this cause you're in academia, but it's like, if your friend is like, Hey, could you give a blurb for this new thing I'm trying? And you spend 10 minutes looking at it. You're like, okay, this looks okay. All right. I'll do a quick blurb. I'm not sure. I don't know this extent of Heights involvement or the extent of like the board of advisors involvement, but these are often very informal arrangements and they don't necessarily mean that the people involved think that this is like a huge deal. They're probably just trying to help out their friends to a certain extent. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, that there was a funny thing where the university released a quite scathing press release of like, you know, the, the culture of normal universities and various board members had to, walk back right Stephen Pinker were like no I really like my university <laughs> yes no I'm cool with Harvard <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. stay I'm happy here yeah uh yeah anyway thanks Jesse thanks Chris all right Jane you will be the final caller 
Oh, there's a new button on here that says unmute. That's helpful. Um, hey, Jesse, thanks for making me the last caller. So about a month ago, um, I think I told you that I had, I teach a foreign language and um, I teach German and I was going over here. I am now actually in Germany taking a little workshop and in the, during the conference season, um, we were introduced. There was a lot of diversity. It was kind of like on the palette for, it was like on the menu for everything that we did. Every single spring workshop was all diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. And, um, I was introduced to just a bunch of crazy pronouns that just look like alien speak. And I'm like, this, no, this isn't, no one's doing this. Well, I'm here and I told you I would find out. And uh, not only are people doing it, it it's, it, it's really got like, it's all been translated into German. Every sort of ideological direction that the gender project has been going in has been completely tra translated. I mean, like, um, respect for all mentioned respect for everybody like this that same kind of tone we even today had a workshop in in it and i it, it had the same feeling as i have when i'm in the states and it's it's this sort of like very dark moral tone that you know you're going to be uncomfortable but this stuff needs to be talked about it's just very i don't know i'm a sometimes i um and what i do appreciate about you and the reason i do subscribe to your newsletter and I'm happy to pay you directly is because I do think you are principled and you are level-headed. But sometimes I think I, I don't think I'm freaking out. I actually think it is. I, I don't think I would respond like James Lindsay, but I think that, you know, there might be a far, five alarm, you know, fire going on here. And they just passed a self ID law so quietly in the night kind of thing that the, I'm, they've put us up with, They've put us in apartments with people um, as part of this program. And the woman I'm staying with had heard nothing. I told her everything was going on in the States. And she's like, oh, that's wow. And the very next day at breakfast, she said, you know, I was listening to the radio yesterday. All of a sudden, there's this self-ID law. I We were visiting schools. And I'm walking down the hallway. And I see ACAB scrawled on the, on the wall. And I'm like, they're all cops are bastards. And it's just... I don't know. It's like we export our culture so much and it feels like we're exporting this as well. And um, I, I mean, one might think maybe it's a fire that will die out. I don't know. But when um, some serious laws are being passed and policies are being made on some pretty crazy grounds, it's, it's really alarming. It really is to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, just, I don't know the situation in Germany. I know that, like, elsewhere there's been pretty significant backlash, including the States. So, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we just have to know more about the situation there. But my sense is there's – here, I just do think the conversation's opening up. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it wouldn't surprise me if we exported some of their stuff. I will say are, – are you in Berlin or where are you? Um, I'm in um, the eastern part of the country. I'm not in Berlin. I'm about an hour oh. away from Berlin. There is like obvious. There is like that history of like radical lefty activism and activists taking over some squat and not anarchists taking over some squat. I should say so. Like, it's not like any sort of crazy lefty stuff there. Well, no I don't think. I think actually, I would say Berlin's been. Full, we went to Berlin last weekend. It's been fully invested in. It's very capitalist, and a lot of this is is completely capitalist driven too. So maybe when the market changes, this will change. Um, it's the same kind of thing where it's on the, every department store has like rainbow tat in, you know, in the windows and everything. Yeah. It's just the laws that are getting passed. And so I agree with you that this conversation is opening up, but to watch Macy Gray say one thing one day, walk it back the next, it, it's, it's like every time something kind of comes forward, I, it, it's almost like something goes back as well. I mean, I want to get to a place where we had good visibility in 2014 where it seemed to me like this trans conversation was more about people who were already living in society, just kind of understanding and being more open so that people weren't having to, people could go to work and work, yeah. be your accountant or be your, you know, your, your executive, you know, assistant. And so what if they're dressed this way or that way? It's just, I mean, obviously this needs to be a bigger conversation in society and it does have an impact on women. And that's something I can't ignore. I'm not going to ever ignore um, and shouldn't ignore because these, some of these policies are, they're not, then you can't just describe yourself as something and then walk into a women's dressing room. It's, it's not going to, and, and I think that that's going to have to, it's going to have to play itself all the way out before somebody 
you know, and that I find really unfair because it seems to me like, well, why don't we just let this happen first? And then when people complain, it's like, we can't pump the brakes ahead of time. It's, um, it's really, it's really disappointing. But anyway. Uh, thank you for the call, Jane. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. I just not knowing the situation in Germany, it's hard for me to, um, have much to say. I obviously, I trust Jane's account. Um, Thank you guys for listening. This was great. We went for an hour and it was a really good conversation. And I'm glad we got to the bottom of that uh, turf cabal. We, we will get them yet. Uh, but yeah, if you like what I've got going on here, just tell other people about the show, spread the word, check out my other stuff. Again, jessysingle.substack.com. I've got a, what I think will be an interesting longer article uh, coming out, I hope early next week about Leon County schools and trying to, there have been some crazy rumors about them doing like Nazi-ish stuff with LGBT youth, which just isn't the case. So I'm going to try to offer a more accurate understanding of this LGBT policy they just passed. And uh, yeah, I got that. Blockchainreported.org, another episode going up there soon. And uh, yeah, spread the word. Spread the good, the good word, the gospel. Thank you guys so much, and I hope you have a good weekend.